It is a beautiful Sunday, and we have a great crowd with us. I know we have a lot of our regular members who are gone because we have uh, the Memorial Day holiday tomorrow, so we have a lot of people who are traveling and so forth, and we're mindful for them that they uh, make it where they're going safely. We have a lot of visitors with us as well, so we're thankful for your presence uh, for visiting with us here at North Heights. Our sermon this morning, as every other sermon we're doing this year, as you can see on the banners to the left and right of me, come from the hymnal. Uh, And our sermon this morning comes from the hymnal. It is one of many songs that we sing almost exclusively to prepare our minds to take the Lord's Supper. Now, I think just about every, in fact, every single song we're going to sing in worship this morning comes from the hymnal, obviously, but comes from that section of the hymnal, the part where we are going to focus on our minds on the taking of the Lord's Supper, because the entire worship service this morning is geared toward directing and focusing our attention on the cross of Jesus Christ and on the memorial that we have in association with that cross, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the bread that we eat, and the fruit of the vine that we drink. Why are we talking about this this morning? Why are we devoting one act of worship to another act of worship based on songs, which is another act of worship? Why are we doubling, tripling down on this subject matter? The reason is because I think if we're not careful, and when I say we, I don't mean necessarily just the congregation at North Heights. I mean Christians the world over, and really this is a a human problem, but we are more than just people, we are Christians, and so it's a Christian thing that we need to concern ourselves with. But it is almost human nature to get comfortable in doing a certain thing a certain way. And when we get too comfortable, the problem comes that we stop, for, stop remembering. We forget the reason why we're doing the certain thing because we're focused too much on doing it the certain way. Or to put it another way, we get on a road that we follow. This is the way we do this thing. And it's not a matter of scriptural versus unscriptural, but rather it's just the scriptural way that we do this thing, the road map that we follow. But if we're not careful, that road can become a smooth groove that we travel very smoothly on. And so smoothly are we traveling on that groove that we don't want to change because it's a very comfortable groove. But if we're not careful, that groove can become a rut where we are so sunk deep into it that not only do we not want to get out, but it's uncomfortable to get out to the point where someone, some, some idiot should come along and say, let's completely just scramble the whole thing to see what would happen. Somebody out there who brought tomatoes might start chucking them because I'm comfortable and I don't want to change the way we do it. We're in this They call it a groove, but it's no longer a groove. Now it's a rut. And if we're not careful, that rut can become a ditch to the point where the act of actually changing it becomes a matter of fellowship and a matter of breaking friendships and breaking hearts and ruining relationships. And it ought not be that way because the Christian compulsion should be for peace with one another. But sometimes we get so comfortable in our groove, rut, now ditch, and you're comfortable in your groove, rut, now ditch, that never the two meet. And that's a dangerous thing. And that attitude can carry over into worship. And it's not just, we're not talking about a North Heights problem necessarily. I don't know your heart, so I shouldn't say that, but necessarily, it's not a North Heights problem. It's not even necessarily just a kingdom of Christ problem, 
but in fact goes back to the Old Testament as a people of God problem, where the people of God sometimes in the Old Testament too got into such a ditch that the things that they did that by textbook definition were right, the way that they did it became wrong. Even though the textbook way they were doing it was right, their hearts were wrong because they were just doing a certain thing because it was the certain way they were in a ditch. And to illustrate that, open your Bibles to the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And notice something the prophet Malachi writes to the people of God. Mind you, Malachi wrote his short but important book in the Minor Prophets specifically to the priesthood of God, to the Levitical people, the people whose sole job it was to facilitate and oversee the worship between God and man. And they had become so routine-oriented. They had become so in a ditch that they lost the heart of the matter, which was a relationship between man and God. And I, Malachi calls them out on that. So look at Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. To whom is he speaking? To the priests that despise my name. And the priests, Malachi writes on their behalf, say, oh, 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 when have we ever literally looked with contempt on the authority of God? When have we ever despised your name? Our record is spotless. We don't despise your name. We're not worshiping idols. We're not leading the people to idol worship. We're not mocking your authority. So God answers the question. I'll tell you in verse 7. You offer polluted bread on my altar. And they say, oh, oh, oh. when have we ever offered? Look, God, look. Here is the table of showbread in the temple. Here is the bread sitting there on. This bread is not polluted. This bread is pure. This bread is scriptural. This bread has no you know, uh, mold on it. It's not leavened bread. This bread is the right kind of bread. This bread is not polluted. So God clarifies. In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, the attitude of the priest was, let's make sure we check this box and check that box. And as long as we keep checking these boxes, that's all that matters. And they became so used to checking boxes that when they looked at the table of the Lord, when they looked at the showbread thereon, they thought, ugh, again with this. Again we have to do this over and over, the same old thing, because they went on a road that led to a rut and became a ditch. And they thought, here it is again, we've just got to do it. Let's check the box and get it over with. It became to them a contemptible thing. So listen to the heart of God in verse 8. When you offer, if you offer the blind for a sacrifice, is that not evil? If you take your lame and sick goat, the goat, not your best of your flock as God wants, but rather you say, well, I was going to kill this one anyway, so I'll throw that one on the divine barbecue because it doesn't mean anything to me. My lamb means something to me, so I'm going to give God my worst lamb and I'm going to keep my best lamb because it means something to me. That is the backwards thought of God. That's not what God wants you to think. What God wants you to think is God means everything to me, so I'm going to give God my best lamb. Instead, they're giving the worst. And so God says, if the governor came to your house, if the president came to your house, if the governor came to your house, if the mayor of town came to your house, if just some old guy that everyone likes on your street came to your house, would you not show that person some respect? Would you give them cold spaghetti leftovers that you were going to just eat in your underwear because your wife was out of town? And so here, here's a bowl for you. No, you'd cook them a steak. You'd grill some hamburgers. You'd fix them at least a nice salad. But you wouldn't just give God what was left over or the governor what was left over. And God says, and yet here I am just getting your leftovers. 
Even though, again, they say, look, the bread is fine. God's problem is not the bread. God's problem is the heart. This morning's sermon is about focusing our attention on the cross of Christ so that when we take the bread, it's more than just bread. And when we drink from the cup, it's more than just grape juice. We will remember the meaning of the memorial. All right, so we've introduced the subject matter. Today, we are focusing our hearts entirely on the communion with Christ, the Lord's Supper. So now let's zero in our focus. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, and let's focus our attention on what the song title behind me reads. Of all the songs that we could sing to prepare our hearts and minds, this one grabbed my attention the most to focus on with regards to the Lord's Supper because it's a great title. It's not just when I think about the cross. That's not the title of the song. It is not just when I survey the cross. It is when I survey the wondrous cross. It is not just when I see the cross. It is not just when I glance upon it. It is not just when I notice it and want to look away from it in shame. No, the song invites you to stare at the cross, to examine the scene of the cross, who is on that cross? Who is next to him on either side? Who is around him on the hill of Golgotha? On that cross, that wondrous cross. An instrument of death, a loathed and hated, feared, maligned thing before this person found himself on it and after which now the most loved symbol. More than just two pieces of wood nailed together, it is a symbol of our salvation because a wondrous thing took place there. God became flesh and died there. And to focus our attention on how that relates to the communion feast. As I say, look at 1 Corinthians 11. And let's compare and contrast what Paul does here, the difference between taking the Lord's Supper feast unworthily and taking the Lord's Supper feast worthily. Now, I don't know what your translation reads. We're not going to yell out our different versions. That's not what this is. But your Bible may have a different word, whereas mine says worthily or unworthily. I just do want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul is using an adverb here, and not to get too grammar on you, but an adverb modifies a verb. In this case, the verb is eating or drinking. It is not modifying the adjective you or me, which that's a pronoun, but me, the, me, the person, the the. the one being described. It's not an adjective describing me. It's not talking about me being unworthy or me being worthy, though we're going to get to that one in a second. Rather, it is about the manner in which we partake and how it could be done unworthily. It could be eaten unworthily or drink, drunk unworthily. So what does that mean? Well, when you eat the Lord's Supper and you do as we talked about those priests of the day of Malachi did and you see it as this thing that just must be done, that you don't have any heart in the matter, one thing you do is you murder the Lord all over again. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Paul says very simply, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the, the Lord in an unworthy manner, let's translate it, eats and drinks condemnation to himself. Eats and drinks and makes himself guilty, in this verse, of the body and blood of the Lord. When you take the Lord's Supper and you put that cracker in your mouth, and to you it's just a cracker, and not the body broken. And when you take a sip of that cup and it's just Welch's grape juice and not the blood of Jesus, and you don't consider the blood of Jesus, you don't consider the body of Jesus, and you put the cracker in your mouth and you count down how long is it going to take for it to dissolve. 
or you swish the drink in your mouth to see is this still ripe or is it going kind of bad, and you're thinking about a thousand other things, you commit sin, which is the reason he went to that cross in the first place. All over again, you murder the Lord. And then the other thing you do is you murder your own soul. You, you make yourself one worthy of condemnation. When you take this act of worship and you make it a mundane thing, look at verse number 29. He that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks condemnation to himself. Why? Paul clarifies why. Because he does so not discerning the body and blood of the Lord. He does so not surveying the cross. He does so not contemplating the sacrifice. He does so not considering, or she does so not considering, the price that was paid to allow me to eat this bread and drink from that cup. Because it's not just a cracker and Welch's. It is a meal that I share with the master himself, which takes me to the next point. If we are worthy, what does that mean? How do I become worthy? What does it mean to eat it in a worthy manner? Look at verse number 28. Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. What what must I do so that when I eat it, I'm eating it correctly? What must I do so that when I'm drinking from that cup, I'm drinking correctly? What is my mind supposed to be? What does he tell you here? Examine yourself. It is not about your neighbor's relationship with Jesus Christ. It is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. He died for your neighbor, but you're not your neighbor. He died for you. And you must consider the weight of the sacrifice that he paid for you because you are the one who's eating that bread even if no one else is. And you are the one who's drinking from that cup even if no one else is. It does not matter how many kids are squirming and crying in the auditorium. It doesn't matter how long you think the preacher's going to preach today. It doesn't matter what you're going to have for dinner because it's going to be sandwiches in a minute. What you are thinking of, what is on your mind and heart is you and your relationship with God and how worthy you are are to take this feast and eat it with your lord because it may or may not surprise you but there are some brethren in christ brothers and sisters of good heart who think to themselves well i have struggled i have sinned i have i have problems i can't take the lord's supper and sometimes it's a one-week thing i have too much going on on my plate i don't feel like i could take communion today Or maybe it's a long-term thing. I have had so many problems, so much struggles, and my Christian life is not where it should be. I can't take the Lord's Supper. And what that person does not realize is they are spitting in the face of the cross of Christ because Jesus died to make you worthy. And if you have some kind of a personal problem, if you have some kind of issue with sin, God has the remedy for that, and it's not abstaining from a fellowship meal with your master. The remedy for that is repentance. So if you've got a sin, repent. So that when you eat that meal, you are eating it with a good, clear conscience and heart. Look look at what Paul says, verse 31 and 32. For we should judge ourselves and therefore not be judged. And when we are judged, we're chastened to the Lord so that we would not be condemned with the world. In other words, recognize within yourself what could cause you to feel unworthy. And fix it because you're a Christian. And fixing it is just a prayer away. And saying to your father, Father, whatever I've done to, to... feel like I shouldn't uh, enjoy the fruits of your sacrifice, forgive me. And then eat that bread and drink from that cup. And do not walk around feeling like you shouldn't take it because Jesus died so that you could take it. Imagine saying to the Father, because this is what you're saying, imagine saying to the Father and to the Son who died for you, I don't want to eat with you today. I don't feel worthy to eat with you. 
The master spent his ministry eating with sinners who weren't in fellowship with him so that he could form relationships with him so that when he died, they would want to find him through the gospel and become worthy of him. And all of those rank sinners made up the beginning of Christianity. And every one of them ate the Lord's Supper with glee, with glee, because they said, he's dead and he's gone to heaven. He's alive in heaven. And I get to eat with him now. Imagine saying, yeah, but I, don't feel, I feel too bad. I've done too much. No, uh, too much for his blood? Because that's the point of his shedding it, is to make you worthy so that you could eat it and drink it and remember what he's done for you. All right, we've talked about why we're talking about this. We've talked about how we partake of this. But now let's consider the actual survey of the wondrous cross. And as we open our attention to the whole spectacle of Golgotha's Hill, we see many persons, places, and things. Our eyes naturally scan a wide vista, and our ears perk up at the sound of something. We hear seven things being said. The circumstances of their being said, what went on into the actual physical body of the Lord as he said these things, we'll touch on in a second. But just to quickly touch on the seven things that he said. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said to Mary, woman, behold your son, John, who would take her in his care. And son, behold your mother, Mary, who would now stay with him because her son was going to die and very soon after ascend. He said to the thief on his one hand, today you will be with me in paradise. He said to the father above him, why, why, why? He said, within himself, I thirst. He said, within himself, it is finished. And he ended by saying a prayer to the father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Seven things we hear. But then we take note as we survey the cross of the time span. And we observe six hours that he hung on that cross. Six hours of, I think I wrote the word agony, which does not do it justice. To be crucified is to be electrocuted. Because they drive those railroad spikes right through the medial nerves. So that every twitch, every flinch, every blink of your eyes courses through your nervous system. And you feel like you're being electrocuted. Now imagine being nailed in such a way, with your body bent in such a way, that you begin to essentially drown. You begin to asphyxiate. And when the body asphyxiates and it loses oxygen, it gets, your lungs start to fill up with carbon dioxide, your body starts to convulse. Your muscles force yourself to breathe. And since you are nailed in such a way, bent in such a way, your, your body is forced into the now famous crucifixion pose, which just radiates electricity and forces the lungs to expel that poisonous gas, starting the process all over. I think it's noteworthy that instead of, as he gasped multiple times in his t trial on the cross, his gasp was not a groan of pain, just, it was not a, a, a words of rebuke for those who put him there, but rather that's when he expelled those seven words of thought and comfort and care for others and fulfillment of scripture and what he said and so forth. That was the times when he spoke. Six hours of agony, six hours of being nailed, of convulsing, of asphyxiating, 
of writhing in pain, of uttering those final words, until finally at the end, a feeling of satisfaction, not that it felt good, but that he had done what he came to do. He was satisfying the justice of God, and then finally allowing himself to die. Seven things he said. Six hours he suffered. Five wounds on his body. I say that in full knowledge of the fact that he had hundreds of wounds on his body. His back was confetti. His body was ripped to pieces from lashes and wounds and scars and scrapes. His, his head was already dripping blood from a crown of thorns, but I mean the five big ones. I mean a wound on his right hand, another on his left. I mean a wound on his right foot, another on his left. And I mean a spear wound that punctured all the way up to his precious heart. Seven things he said, six hours he suffered, five wounds on his body, four pieces of garments that the Romans made sport with. He had a waistband, one of them took home as a trophy. He had sandals that another took home as a trophy. He had an outer garment that someone took home as a trophy. And somebody, one of them, they would have wanted, somebody wanted that inner robe, that seamless tunic. But they couldn't split it four ways because it would have ruined the value by ripping it. So they gambled over it, playing a game at the feet of the dying Savior. Seven things he said, six hours he suffered, five wounds on his body, four pieces of garment, leaving him shamed and naked, by the way, three crosses to observe. Our eyes naturally are fixed on the one in the middle, but you can't help but look over here and see a mocker, see one who rejected him. You can't help but look over there and see a mocker, see one who rejected him and then thankfully later repented. You see the cross of repentance, you see the cross of rejection, and you see the man in the middle of the cross of redemption seven things he said six hours he suffered five wounds on his body four pieces of clothing three crosses two kinds of people he died for the only two kinds there are he died for the jews he came here for the jews he was their messiah and they rejected him they conspired against him they plotted to have him killed because they were happy in their ditch doing things their way checking their boxes and he came and upset the apple cart he had to go but he died for the Romans, too, who convicted him. The Romans who made sport of him. The Romans who opened up his back. The Romans who nailed him to the board. The Roman who convicted him of the only crime recorded in Roman history. His crime was he was killed for being the king of the Jews. That's what they wrote above his head. He died for them, too. And all other Gentiles, whoever would come. Seven things he said. Six hours of agony five wounds on his person, four articles of clothing they stripped, him, oh, stripped away from him, three crosses on the hill, two kinds of people, one man, only one Savior. I'm teaching great chapters of the Bible on the Sunday morning room one class next quarter. One of the chapters is Hebrews 10, the theme of which is you only get the one Jesus. You reject Jesus, he's not sending another. You, you throw away this one, you're not getting a second. Messiah you lose this one you reject this one you don't turn back to this one you don't get another you die and you're condemned forevermore you just get the one there could only be one there only was one one savior of all so we've talked about why we're here today every day every lord's day we take the lord's supper but why today we focused on it in the way that we did the danger in just going through the motions we talked about the manner in which we take it and to ensure that we take it in a worthy manner. The, the way that we take it is worthy of His sacrifice. We've surveyed the cross and seen the sights and the sounds and the space of time that took place thereon. And now finally, as we bring the sermon to a close, let's talk about those emblems.
Let's consider what it is that we're eating and drinking. To the world, it's just a cracker. It's, bought, it's, it's a, from a box of matzah bread bought at Kroger for $3.95. And it doesn't mean anything. And it is just a cracker. It does not literally transform into physical flesh. That's superstitious nonsense. No, it is just a cracker, but to me, in my heart, I see this cracker, how it has been broken, and I'm reminded of my master whose body was broken. Not a bone. Not a bone was broken. That's fulfillment of Scripture. But it was broken in submission. And it was broken, not at the cross, where he spent his hours of writhing agony. It was broken, not at Golgotha, not at Gabbatha, on the slab, where the Romans opened up his back with the cat o' nine tails, and bludgeoned him, and beaten him, and made sport of him, and shoved a crown of thorns in his head. It was not broken then. It was broken at Gethsemane. It was broken when he uttered the prayer, not my will, but thy will be done. If there is any other way not to have to experience the fullness of the cup of the wrath of God. Let it be done, because I A, want to save the world, but B, do not want to die this way. But I am prepared to die this way, if it be your will. And it was his will. And he said, thy will be done. And he got up, and he met Judas, and he went. And that was the moment he was broken. And that's why he could endure all the bludgeoning, and the beating, and the barbarism, it's why he could endure the hours on the cross and not call those 12 legions of angels because he had already not given up. He had already submitted to his body broken. And when you eat that piece of a larger loaf that we all of us share, he eats it with us because he gave himself for us. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. When he, this is Paul, by inspired recitation, taking us back to the Last Supper of the Lord. He says, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. This memorializes me. This will remind you evermore of me, a body which is broken for you. This do, this eat in remembrance of me. On your thoughts and on your hearts as you eat the bread, remember the Lord who gave his life. For you, his blood was shed. That's the second one. Look at verse 24 and 25 now. After the same manner, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. As you drink it. Every time you drink this cup, under these circumstances, do it in remembrance of me. To the world, it's just Welch's grape juice. You get it in bulk at Sam's Club, and you can, it'll last you half a year. But to me, it means something. To me, as it is poured out, I don't care if it's poured out in these rinky-dinky little plastic cups or if you pass it to me in a golden goblet or whatever it is, when I drink it, I know it has been separated across the vast kingdom of Jesus Christ, which knows no boundaries or barriers or borders, that all of us collectively on this Lord's Day drink from that proverbial cup the literal drink. And when we drink that literal drink, proverbially, memorially, we remember his blood was poured out like an offering. Not blood spilled as though he was killed without his having anything to do with it. They took him, they grabbed him, and he fought them every step of the way, and blood was spilled 
That's what you say when a murder was done. Well, it was a murder, but it was a willing murder. He gave his life. It was blood shed. It was blood poured. It was blood offered. And when I drink just that meager amount, I'm reminded that this is the purchase price for my right to drink this cup. He died so that I could eat with him and remember that sacrifice. Now here's where it's different this morning. I mean, I say that it's been different a lot. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We are prepared to stop everything. And if you need to obey the gospel, we are going to stop and baptize you into Jesus Christ. And we will sing songs to kill time. And then after you come up out of the water, we will wait until you have dried off and you can sit back in that pew and together, as part of the family in Christ, you get to eat that meal. We will wait on you like you do when you're going to a family dinner and you have to have that one brother who doesn't show up until later. You all have to wait on him to eat. We will wait on you, our new potential brother or sister in Christ, to eat that meal with our master. But in order for us to do that, if you're not a Christian, you've got to become one. Which means you have to believe everything that we've talked about this morning, that Jesus died for you and your sins to take them away. You have to take those sins of yours and put them to death in repentance. Bury them in a watery grave and rise to walk in a new life. Romans chapter 6, that's why you're baptized. Not because the water saves you, the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for you saves you. By the grace of Christ, it was offered for you, it saves you. Through your faith and obedience, it saves you. But nevertheless, you're commanded to reenact his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you do, he saves you. And if you are not a Christian, Become a Christian today so that today and every Lord's Day for the rest of your life, you get to eat a meal with the Master and enjoy the, the benefits of His sacrifice for you. And if you are a Christian, but you've not been faithful, today is the day to repent. Today is the day to come home. Today is the day to recommit yourself, to start fresh with Jesus Christ. And what better way to kick that new life again with Him off than starting it off with a meal with him. So make your heart right, make your soul right, and then eat that body and drink from that blood and enjoy the benefits of his salvation for you again. If you have a need, the invitation is yours. Please come as we stand and sing.